Hello everyone, my name is Alex Kaminsky, and I'll be your host today for this episode of eMegCast. Continuing our theme from last episode, today we will once again focus our attentions on emergency medical services in the pre-hospital setting. Specifically, we're exploring the life, duty, and responsibilities of an active EMS medical director. Additionally, we'll be looking briefly at ways that a physician might find themselves providing either direct or indirect patient care in the field. Joining us is Dr. John Jew, longtime emergency medicine veteran, formerly trained in internal medicine and infectious diseases. He's currently a professor of emergency medicine at Oregon Health and Sciences University. And in addition to his many other positions, he's currently the EMS medical director for Multnomah County, Oregon, which is home to a population of nearly 750,000 people. All right, folks, you know what's next. Cue the music. program, Dr. Jew. So with that brief introduction aside, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what drew you to emergency medicine? Oh, actually, it's sort of a sort of crudest way. I'm sort of the uh, elder grandfather of the uh, profession. When I entered into medicine, I actually trained, um, went to undergraduate in Ann Arbor, uh, University of Michigan, and medical school at Wayne State. And at that period of time, uh, choosing a career, emergency medicine really was in its infancy where there was only two or three residency programs available and internal medicine was clearly the mainstream and um, I chose internal medicine as my primary career here as well and through uh, some circumstances I sort of fell into emergency medicine because of my experience at Detroit Receiving Hospital and exposure to Ron Crum and Judy Tintinale who were my mentors and I obviously spent a lot of time in the ER, literally, um, at Detroit Receiving, and that attracted uh, my attention because I really loved being in the emergency department as well. So that's that's how my career started. Okay. And from there, how did you get involved in emergency medical services and the pre-hospital environment? Well, that was sort of interesting. You know, when I came to uh, back to Oregon Health and Sciences University as faculty in 1982, um, I, I was actually, uh, one of my goals was actually to teach uh, emergency medicine residents at that time and rotating about emergency medicine. And uh, one of our leading faculty members, Dr. John Moorhead, was going on sabbatical, and he pulled me in the office and said, Hey, John, how would you like being um, a uh, EMS medical director for Portland Fire? And this is 1988. He said, Well, you know, John, I don't know much about it, but I'm willing to learn. And so he sort of smiles as you'll like it. Uh, and that started the entire career of, uh, of EMS uh, in pre-hospital care as well. So that uh, so it sort of was a fortuitous. I fell into it. Once I got into it, I really started liking it. Wow, that's great. It's sort of again. What are uh, some of the titles that you currently hold? So I am uh, currently the uh, EMS medical director for Multnomah County. That's a uh, that's actually the county of which Portland, Oregon sits in as well. And I'm the medical director for the transporting agency, the 911 agency as well as Portland Fire, Gresham Fire, and all the fire first response agencies. So anything with lights and sirens that has to do with medicine, that's out of hospital care, um, I supervise the medical activities uh, for that uh, group. I've been the EMS medical director since 1985. I'm both the fire medical director as well as the uh, transporting agency. 
The other thing that's sort of unique in my position, I have an, basically an epidemiology MPH from University of Washington, and I'm actually in the public health department as well with uh, formal training in public health. So I'm in the, uh, it's a very unusual position, and not a lot of other people. Dave Percy in Houston is also, uh, he is actually the public health director of Houston, but it's a little bit uncommon relationship. I think it's a great um, place to be at because I actually view EMS as being a public health um, specialty as well. And for our listeners, who actually employs an EMS medical director? I'm actually a county employee uh, for various reasons, uh, a lot of that being political. The other hospitals didn't want a quote-unquote OHSU employee, which I'm also a faculty member of. Being, They were worried that, uh, quote-unquote, the medical director would steal her patients towards their hospital. So there's, some, there's a lot of politics involved um, in that issue here as well. Okay, a county employee, that makes sense. So, from last month, many of our listeners had a general overview of EMS fellowships, but maybe for those that weren't able to tune in, you could give a quick overview as to where EMS falls in the scope of emergency medicine in the United States. Yeah, and, um, and so as everybody, at uh, least uh, if you're uh, listening to the podcast in North America, there is a lot of differences in the international scope of emergency medicine. In North America, emergency medicine is actually mainstream, uh, mainstream and is in the American Board of Medical Specialties, as well as North America and Canada, too. So it is a specialty in itself. And within the um, emergency medicine arena, EMS is a subspecialty in emergency medicine. And you can actually be in family medicine as well and be a subspecialty in, uh, in EMS as well. So we came subspecialty status about two years ago um, as a, one of the three or four subspecialties in emergency medicine itself, other ones being obviously pediatric and ultrasound and toxicology, et cetera. So it in itself is a subspecialty in emergency medicine with a, a bit, basically a uh, distinct body of knowledge and a distinct area of expertise and extinct, uh, unique aspects of training. My colleagues in Europe and my, uh, as well as the UK and Australia are slightly different, and there are some nuances. So if you look at the specialty of EMS, I think um, without being, I would say, parochial, uh, I think uh, that North America is leading specialty of EMS um, as it stands. There are a lot of other, I would say, emergency medicine experts, but they're labeled something different in other countries. So for the medical students out there that might be thinking of a career as an EMS medical director, what portion of your career was spent on EMS administrative roles versus clinical work? I devote half my clinical time to go seeing patients in the emergency department, and the other of my time is devoted purely to EMS service. So the vast majority of my administrative time is administration of EMS. Okay, great. So moving on a little, what would you say your primary responsibilities are as medical director, and what sort of skills do you use most frequently? Yeah, I think the primary skills, and actually uh, a lot of the primary skills were not learned in medical school. <laughs> it was on-the-job <laughs> learning as well. So from the EMS medical director, every, everybody that is an EMS medical director does it. He or she sets, I would say, the standard of care of uh, out-of-hospital practice um, in medicine in your area of jurisdiction. So that's a broad scope. And I use the word out of hospital because there is uh, healthcare changes in at least North America and the United States. There's a lot more going on. There may be not a hospital component to it as well. So 
we're looking at community paramedicine and the whole, I would say, arena of outpatient uh, ambulatory care, and it may not be as intertwined to the hospital as it historically has been here as well. So getting back to the original question, you set protocols, you, um, I would say, identify quality assurance, you're intimately involved in training, you're intimately involved in public messaging of your of your people. You actually, uh, which is the be- most fun of it, is are in the field with your colleagues in paramedicine, uh, paramedics and EMTs, and you're actually operationally involved in all aspects of out-of-hospital care in your community. So you, a good medical director, he or she uh, should know the pulse of their community and know essentially what the challenges are in your community as well as the uh, you need to be on cutting edge, especially in certain roles, in our case in resuscitation medicine, where obviously airway, resuscitation medicine, uh, cardiac arrest, unstable patients, trauma patients, and children uh, who need EMS um, and the whole nine yards, uh, anything to do with emergencies, uh, you, you sort of own the, own the field for. So that is the uh, broad scope of the job duties. Wow, that seems like a broad base of responsibilities. So what are some of the challenges that you face, be it with implementing protocols or otherwise? One of the challenges in EMS is actually, if in a large system, basically knowing what your workforce is doing. So essentially, I'm affiliated with about 1,000 providers in the county all doing their own thing. <laughs> and you're, you're I'm sort of looking at, the, at like a coach. Boy, I hope they're going right instead of left. <laughs> so, like, I tell you, say that tongue in cheek because your job is to make sure that you're communicating well, and and obviously uh, that is a huge task. And um, the communication skills and the cultural awareness skills are major challenges to the EMS medic director. You need to have your workforce with you as well. And uh, honestly, telling them to do it versus having them do it because they want to do it are two different things. And that's the trick um, as a medical director. So can you give me an example of that where you might have trouble redirecting or sort of guiding the standards set forth for the EMTs, paramedics, or physicians under your charge? Yeah, so a good example is we have the same issues that the hospital has is that when uh, all the stuff with the recent uh, emphasis on high-quality CPR, so historically we've had like two examples. One of them is we spent a lot of time in the airway in a cardiac arrest, and I had to say, no, 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 no. Don't worry about the airway. You need to stay on the chest and uh, pump on the chest. Doctor, why do you want to do that? Uh, isn't the airway important? So, well, we we turned out that the uh, chest compressions are much more important than the airway here as well, trust me. And so that that's sort of another example. The second one, which is more bleeding edge, is like resuscitation and trauma. In the 80s and 90s and even um, early 2000s, prior to the uh, Iraq War, this is an ATLS. Okay, uh, trauma system entry hypotensive two large bar IVs, IV fluids wide open, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're doing, I would say, uh, in certain patients, permissive hypotension. So those are, I would say, major changes in the direction of medical care, and your workforce needs to say, well, you know what, I've been telling you for the last 10 years doesn't really work. Yeah. <laughs> you sure? Yeah, 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 trust me. That, that's, those are two concrete examples of how you have to change the direction of the ship um, going one way.
And how do you assess quality of care, protocol adherence, and general performance of your first responders? So there's many very facets of quality of care. Uh, EMS, like other large organizations, has their performance matrices. And the performance matrices, like hospitals, are this is first contact of EKG time in 10 minutes, the compliance of giving aspirin to patients with themes, uh, 100%. There are EMS-specific strategic benchmarks that all EMS systems intrinsically have to make, and that's dependent upon the agency and the EMS medical director. And I think in the near future, those the benchmarks that the hospital is having to make, uh, the CMS benchmarks, there's going to be it's going to be promulgated down to the EMS field as well, and it'll affect us. And we're anticipating so, uh, some of those benchmarks coming down. So the first answer is system benchmarks of quality. Um, that's a big answer. In order for you to have those benchmarks of quality, you need to have a data system that actually measures the benchmarks of quality as well. And those benchmarks of quality needs to be really realistic rather than some figment of your imagination here as well. The second real issue is the quality of medical care, and you can do it by many different ways. One of them is by chart review, which is historically. The best way, honestly, is a combination of field observation, chart review, um, training and observation, and uh, in some cases, annual performance competency-based testing of meeting the quality of your organization. And then finally, in combination between observed skills, tested skills, data on individual performance, as well as any other outliers will comprise your provider performance matrix, which which we're like anybody else, and I get my monthly annual performance measure by my chair as well. So there's a paramedic component to that as well. Uh, our EMS charts are honestly ahead of the hospital where the paramedic is required to put on all the performances. So if you're charting, uh, if your documentation system is good, you can actually uh, have your pulse on your finger on the who is doing what and why, um, and assuming that your documentation as well as your database system is good enough to detect those variances as well. So that gives you a rough idea. So you can look at, like a good example would be, I want to figure out who's having trouble with airway manipulation. I can query the amount of airways and the misses and uh, and things like that almost within 12 to 24 hours for my entire system. To quickly recap, to monitor protocol adherence and quality of care, the EMS director has at least four tools to work with. Number one, system-wide benchmarks via data system analysis. The example given was time to EKG in the field on an appropriate patient. Number two, chart review. Number three, field observation of direct patient care along with regular competency-based testing. And finally, number four, individual performance matrices, which he gave the example, measure number of missed intubations per individual. So you've been speaking to uh, a lot of protocols during our discussion here. What sort of process or resources do you use to design and implement new ideas or change existing protocols? Oh, that's a great question. In our setting, we actually have a great group of EMS medical directors in the four or five county regions in Portland. So what we actually have learned is that protocols need to be regional in, in scope. Just because you're crossing the county line does not mean that the, the principles of medicine needs to be. So what's really happening is that there is a group, called, uh, which is an informal group. It's not governmental. We call that the Treatment Protocol Committee of uh, Greater Portland. 
and the EMS medical directors with their agency leadership meet in one room literally and discuss a common set of protocols and direction uh, as well. And it works by a consensus where we actually get together and say this is what we think strategic direction should be. There may be individual variations on the way it's worded, but the general philosophy should be consistent all the way through as well. So it's, um, it's a regional body, and it's consensus-based, and it's based upon literature as well as personal uh, interest in the topic that's available. Right now, like the good example is we're, we're looking at a protocol for uh, triaging patients with high degree of stroke into our primary stroke intervention centers as well, and that's a lot of tough going that goes through multiple systems, et cetera, et cetera as well. Talking about protocol design and unique challenges to EMS got me thinking about high utilizers of the 911 system, especially given that your administrative duties revolve so much around resource delegation. Are there any steps that you or Multnomah County has taken to ease the stress from an overburdened emergency transport service? Yeah, um, I would say the issue, and there's actually two questions um, that are embedded in it. All EMS systems in the entire world are challenged with what we call the ability to triage the calls by acuity and by need here as well. So one of the biggest challenges is that every uh, dispatch center, people call 911 because they think it's raining outside. <laughs> it's like, why did you call 911? Uh, so uh, they use 911 for basically the uh, concierge of the, uh, oh, I, I have a ache and pain and what should I do about it as well. So our challenge, and every community has this challenge, and over the whole world is to triage that call uh, in a in a, a high priority fashion. And frankly, it's inexact because most of, a lot of the time, about one half the callers are the third person uh, callers. A good example is I saw this person not moving in the street. I was just driving by. I just want to let you know. I said, okay, uh, is he breathing? Well, I, uh, I don't know because I drove by him about five minutes ago as well. So that gives you an idea that the um, call science from a from a triage point of view, and that's why we respond license hiring to a lot of, I would say, people. It turns out they didn't need license hiring response, but the the error problem is, is uh, oh, you have a person that's not responding. Oh, he's not breathing. We need to do a full cardiac arrest. Getting back to your to your original question of the people who use and frequent 911. It turns out they are doing it because of many different real reasons, and another way to look at it is is that uh, a lot of them have behavioral health or substance or uh, or dependencies that actually or uh, medical conditions that call 911, and they are not channeled to an appropriate resource. So let me sort of do a redirect here. Since we uh, in Oregon we have had um, Obamacare or the Oregon Health Plan version of that for the last two or three years. And a lot of our patients in the United States who were, I would say, disadvantaged populations that didn't have insurance were left in the lurch and their only safety net was to call 911. So in, in, in that setting, it was appropriate to call 911 because they didn't have money or a doctor and uh, we are basically the uh, final uh, bottom line. Since the um, advent of the uh, ACA, otherwise known as Obamacare, um, we have uh, noticed our people with non-insurance to go from 15% to about seven to, uh, 6 to 7%, which is in the vast majority of our disadvantaged population now has uh, some sort of health access to health care. Uh, and our health care providers, our managed care organizations, have hired a team of social workers, behavioral health specialists, 
housing and a multidisciplinary, and their basically mission is to find the appropriate services, both uh, um, medical as well as non-medical, that would actually fix or greatly relieve the problem of people who call them and when I would say inappropriately would be a judgmental word, but uh, it would be people that call 911 for because they had no other resources. And with those, uh, we currently have eight of those social workers housed in our public health department, and they're working with our hospital colleagues and our outpatient colleagues and behavioral health specialists and housing specialists and, whole, and case managers to actually try to solve a lot of the problems. And within our cohort, we have noticed that these calls uh, to EMS have dropped over 50 to 60 percent in, uh, when they're when they're basically uh, case managed actively by our social workers and the team. Now, is case management of high utilizers or poor resource patients uh, a system that's unique to Oregon, or is this a movement we're seeing on a national scale? The program is unique to our area, but basically um, we stole uh, or borrowed the idea from San Diego County uh, and Dr. Jim Jump Dunforth, um, and they had an EMS unit go out, and we sort of expanded on it and actually had a um, the CMS, one of the innovations in healthcare. We applied for that, and our this is one of the few pilot projects that has, has borne fruition. So well, there are a lot of similar type of efforts in uh, almost all aspects of the of at least in the. This is unique to the United States because you know Canada has national health insurance and things like that. So uh, U.S. is uh, is new to I would say a comprehensive healthcare. Whatever you think of Obamacare, it's a unique uh, program here as well. So. There are a lot of similar programs in other municipalities, and ours is probably just one of the examples. Now, you talked about collaboration and borrowing protocols from San Diego County. Are there other national bodies of EMS directors that congregate and exchange ideas? Obviously, we do. And, and obviously, um, there's actually two or three aspects. And there's a formal group. Um, it's probably the best academic group. It's called the National Association EMS Physician. It is the body that actually embedded, embedded the entire specialty aspect of EMS as a subspecialty. So it's that body that actually has the academic foundation and the official foundation for uh, EMS as a subspecialty, at least in North America, or definitely in the United States there as well. So it's called the National Association EMS Physician, and there's an annual meeting where all the EMS leadership comes into one area. It's very similar to ASAP meeting or Society of Academic Emergency Medicine. And there's an informal body group of um, we're just like anybody else where there is a gathering of the eagles where the top 50 municipalities in uh, North America as well as London and uh, New Zealand meet together and we exchange ideas and compare notes and basically it's sort of a think tank of challenges and solutions that are, I would say, unique to our aspects in uh, EMS care in, in our community. So yes, those two there's, two, there's some other ones as well. The Europeans have the similar kind of um, meetings and organizations uh, that are dedicated to EMS. I know uh, the UK has uh, identical parallel process, and there are other meetings that, that are cross-cultural uh, that are resuscitation basis, um, especially American Heart, the recess meeting, and things like that. So there are multiple venues where they actually have EMS specialty uh, with other specialties like cardiologists, neurologists, and the whole nine yards. It's a very fertile area for collaboration.
It's not surprising there's so much collaboration within the EMS community, given that every field of medicine has their own unique medical emergencies. So far, we've talked a lot about general life as an EMS director, protocols, oversight, and collaboration. Slightly switching gears, one of the reasons I, as an EMIG caster, wanted to interview Dr. Ju was that he had quite the reputation for showing up to calls in the field, plus or minus a resident in tow. Individually, I was incredibly intrigued about the idea of a physician providing direct patient care in the field and thought that medical students nationwide might like to know a little bit more about either direct or indirect patient care while in the field. So my first question to Dr. Ju is a multifaceted one. Firstly, what is the role of the emergency physician in the field and why don't we see more physicians providing direct patient care outside of the hospital? And then next, what is Dr. Ju's role when arriving on scene? The first question is the following, and I can almost answer it in a sort of a twofold way. The first one is the role and responsibility of a physician in the field. And I would have to say, being a little bit parochial, is that there needs to be a really good reason for that physician to be in the field. And that good reason would be emergency medical services training either as a area of concentration within the EMS residency or as a fellowship as well. So you have you should have some business in learning about the system and providing direct patient care. The problem that occurs is that suppose you're Joe Blow from hospital organization, you're only credentialed to provide care for that organization in the hospital, and in most cases, you're not provided the credential for that care in the field in any, uh, any fashion. You're obviously, you're, you're covered in most states under the Good Samaritan Hall, at least, at least in the United States, and, but unless you actually have a job description that uh, says that you need to provide out-of-hospital care, and we've termed that in North America, EMS care, you're sort of um, out of your lane. So you need to have some sort of reason to be in the field to provide direct medical care in the field. And uh, the best reason is either education. Uh, education is for uh, EMS specialties because you're going to be working with, the, with uh, your providers in the field or to assist them provide direct uh, medical care in the field here as well. So I can guarantee you that the um, EMS providers in the field, in Oregon, our paramedics are two-year, a minimum two-year graduates. So there are a lot of, I have some master's level. Uh, in fact, I have a, two or three uh, physician's assistants that are still paramedics here as well. I'm a paramedic as well. So the, the problem that occurs is that you need to have someone that's culturally aware. So the answer to your question, when I show up on the scene, I, I'll use the sports analogy. I'm much more of the coach. If there is something going south or there is a situation that I have uh, unique aspects to, of a specialty, I will assume roll the call, um, being very careful not to step on my, my EMS colleagues' toes on that area. And so a certain situation like a surgical crack or an amputation or something else that uh, uniquely, or an MCI where you actually have a little bit more insight into the acuity of the thing. So 99% of the time I'm really in the coaching role, and 1% of the time I'm in the assist role or taking over the call. If I am in the assist role, I'm basically, um, I'm sort of the, just another medic on the scene and uh, basically assist the paramedic in charge and uh, running the call, or however he or she uh, runs the call here. So as an EMS director, you're primarily there as a coach. Sometimes you are hands-on, but what you're saying is, if I'm a community physician and I happen to have my hands on some pressers, I probably shouldn't start administering those in the field and likely wouldn't be welcome to take charge of the call. 
Uh, in fact, I think you can try administering them in the fuel, but our uh, paramedics are very sensitive, and because a lot of them are fire, they believe in a firm chain of command. And if you show up and you're a doctor and say, I don't care who you are, you're not in my chain of command. You can't tell me to do anything. And so they're very protected of their specialty for obvious reasons. So you have no idea who this person is and their credentials or their qualifications. And say, like, uh, just because you say you're a doctor, I'm not quite sure what to do with you. And so we're going to do our thing, what we're supposed to do here as well. That's in the, uh, in the best interest of the public here as well. We do have a way to, uh, to vet those people, and we call online medical control. And after a certain uh, period of time, we usually are able to uh, basically use the provider's resources to the best of our ability here as well. So in no shape or form will we say we won't take assistance, but they need to be well within the mainstream of the well-known assistance that uh, we're known to. A good example would be, I would say, the nurse midwife when he or she, most of them are she calls. We are on the scene and it's usually their call, not our call, and uh, we will usually assist that uh, nurse midwife in anything that she wants to do with the patient, with the exception that if there is something that's going south that we actually have expertise, like airway manipulation or things like that, we will take over that aspect of the call. Uh, so we're very collaborative in that setting. So my tongue-in-cheek aside, there are some situations where physicians might be welcome and or even in charge, such as the case of the midwife. But Dr. Ju, what about the case of a mass casualty or a natural disaster? Oh, yes. I think the, the area of disaster response, I'm part of the Oregon 2 disaster medical team. And in the United States, we are at times, the best way to envision that is a, a National Guard of doctors, nurses, paramedics, pharmacists, and logisticians that are on call that, that can be federalized at any time for national emergencies. So that's the federal disaster team. It's called the National Disaster Medical System, NDMS, and it's under Health and Human Services, which is under, uh, it's called ASPR. It's used a big federal bureaucracy, but we're part of that federal bureaucracy as well. So once you are all part of the NDMS and you're activated, you have federal orders and you can um, have practice in any portion of the United States or its, um, or its territories as well. So you have credentials and you're credentialed by the federal government, very similar to a VA doctor or a military doctor. Can you give another example of how a physician might find themselves in a direct patient care role in the field? There's a lot of roles, but the real question is, well, who's covering your medical care and the liability of that medical care? So there's a legal issue as well as a capacity issue. So a lot of times, if you're in a volunteer organization, in Oregon we have what we call our Medical Reserve Corps, uh, our Medical Reserve Corps is a disaster organization, but you have the, I would say, the legal framework of working for the state as a volunteer. The state covers your legal liability as well as some of the operational uh, tasks, and you have a legal framework, and you have a scope of practice, and uh, the board and medical examiner uh, basically uh, assists you in all the legal aspects. There are multiple opportunities to be, I would say, the medical advisor for uh, some of these organizations like Search and Rescue, and you're actually the coach for their medical care. If you're a coach, you're not as liable for organizations that, that don't inherently provide medical care. So let me rephrase it differently. If you're actually providing intrinsic support to a Search and Rescue group with the major mission is keeping that Search and Rescue group healthy, that's not providing medical care. You're advising them how to provide their first aid. Versus being formally dispatched in a 911, your mission and duty is to provide medical care, and you're legally responsible for 
all the actions uh, to a higher authority here as well. And so they're, they're a completely different framework. So the quick answer is you can actually assist other organizations in providing other medical care for their personnel in hazardous or out-of-hospital situations. Uh, or you can volunteer for disaster organizations. As we've discussed, it's uncommon to see doctors deployed as first responders. However, this isn't necessarily the case for other countries around the world. Can you speak a little bit to that for a moment? What are the driving forces and ideas which are keeping physician roles as hospital-centered? So the quick answer is you really need to look at the practice of medicine to figure out if there is an advantage of having the physician in the field. If you're a trauma patient, Unless there is an open thoracotomy in the field, and that's very rare. Hims, which is in England, has done a couple of thoracotomies in the field, but the vast majority of your resources and your outcome depend upon the operating suite and the blood bank. No matter how good you are, of a surgeon you are, if you have no environment to work in, you're basically worthless, and it doesn't make sense for that surgeon to be in the field. It may make sense for a forward operating base to stabilize and move to a higher operating base as well. Another example is if you look at cardiac arrest, um, you're a physician, what am I going to do differently besides pericardiosynthesis uh, in a cardiac arrest? You're not going to do hardly anything different, at least right now, unless you're putting ECMO in the field <laughs> that a permex can do. So uh, your value as a physician, you don't add any unique aspects that our paramedics can, you cannot teach our paramedics to be trained for here as well. So I think, uh, not to say that there isn't a value, there's clearly a value, I want to emphasize that, but you need to um, identify the true value of that physician and direct medical care of the patient in the field. And honestly, I think in a lot of the cases, your true medical value is best in an environment where you have your tools there and uh, the French have really promulgated out of a hospital ICU care, and frankly, that may be valuable in a medical environment where there's septic shock and things like that. Um, in a trauma environment, a lot of the quality of care is, uh, is hospital and operating suite and blood bank right now. So as the specialty changes, you'll see that change in the field. Uh, in the, as, as the field of emergency medic medicine expands, you're going to see much more of a blending, and what I anticipate is that there'll be more physician presence in the field, but it has to be value-added. Dr. Ju goes on to describe a number of the models found across Europe, but for the sake of time, I'll add some information about them to the show notes at the end. Essentially, we're currently using paramedics as force multipliers. Their skills in resuscitation medicine are excellent, and without access to additional tools, there's little else an MD or a DO could bring into the field, except in the case of rare circumstance. One of his comments worth mentioning is his predictions on the expansions of mid-level providers in the field. Their goal being definitive treatment outside of the hospital. They would do this by triaging, providing wound care, prescribing, and diagnosing, particularly as point-of-care labs and ultrasound become more widely available. Not only could this potentially decrease ED wait times, but actively decrease cost of healthcare as well. My final question for Dr. Ju was centered around the concept of telemedicine. What do you think of the role or potential for telemedicine as a method of indirect patient care in the field? How do you see it developing in the future? It's huge. 
Uh, I can't understate that much. Uh, providing you know who's on both sides of the field, and um, as you well know, almost all areas, at least in North America, have been doing telestroke, and it is very functional and very value-added. So, And we've been pushing images all the way through, and our consultants can look at images and look at uh, patients as well. You know, on it, on, honestly, this has been going on for 20 years in the state of Alaska. Our village health uh, healthcare they are 800 hours, and they've been using telemedicine, calling their uh, receiving hospitals for telemedicine video online uh, satellite link for 20 years. And they've been asking and basically consulting with their receiving physicians and whether to bring the patient in. Obviously, in the middle of Alaska, that's like a 200-mile dog sled or snowmobile ride. That's a huge issue. So I think this um, telemedicine is a huge venue, saving both time and money and acuity, providing that you are fairly grounded in the ability of telemedicine to assess the situation. It really helps having a, I would say, educated provider on both ends uh, and knowing what the roles and the limitations of the technology are. OTSU is doing telemedicine with some assisted living uh, care facilities, and it's huge. So there you have it. Dr. Ju, clearly a fan of telemedicine. Well, with that, folks, I think we've reached the end of our interview. Thank you, Dr. Ju, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, it was my pleasure. Well, EMIG Cast listeners, we have covered a lot of ground today. We've gained insights into the life of an active EMS director, including some of the challenges, methods of protocol development, as well as methods of implementation and evaluation of said protocols. We also got a brief look into how doctors can get involved in patient care outside of the hospital, including some of the limitations as well as ideologies surrounding physician roles in the field. With that, once again, this is Alex Kaminsky, and thanks for joining me today for another episode of EMIGCast. Join us again next month, where we'll be getting a little bit of post-match insight from the class of 2016. This is Alex, signing out.